I was just fascinated by the space and what's happening there and and this idea of sort of fractional ownership and uh, just the philosophy of crypto had a very profound influence on my thinking so with philosophy i mean i think crypto fundamentally has done this for a lot of people where they start asking interesting fundamental questions why things are the way they are what are the things that we take for granted and and i think that's a very good framework for for startups hello everyone my name is chris powers and i want to thank you for joining me on the fort podcast this show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business ideas entrepreneurship investing and life we take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed we'd love to hear from you at the fort podcast at gmail.com Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. I'm really excited to have a friend of mine, Abhijit Dwivedi, the CEO and founder of ZeroDown.com on the show with me today. I've gotten to know Abhijit throughout the year um, as he has ventured into this new company, Zero Down, which is really revolutionizing how folks will buy homes. He has a fascinating story, and I'm excited to get into it. So thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Excited Can to talk you, to you. We, we usually just jump kind of right into it and... I just kind of want to talk about maybe early on in your life growing up and, and what that was like and then how that kind of led to Silicon Valley and, and everything that you've experienced there. So without further ado, like how, how have things been since the beginning and, and what got you to where Zero Down is today? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, um, I uh, born and brought up in, in India and in sort of very small town. Uh, in the state of Rajasthan, which is a famous sort of touristy state. Um, and uh, I spent uh, almost all my childhood in this really, uh, really small city. Um, my my father was an engineer. I, as, uh, as with most sons, I was, uh, uh, I wanted to be an engineer. And uh, so I did, I, I went and got an engineering degree in, in materials science, but my sort of natural inclination was always in, uh, in programming, into video games, uh, trying to make and design video games. And uh, I was just very interested in, you know, having a different career than the one that I sort of uh, was into. And I started to apply for master's programs in computer science with almost no hope of ever getting in. And I got in uh, into one school um, in Philadelphia, the CS department at, uh, at UPenn. It was really my first l- big lucky break uh, that brought me to, uh, to the US. And uh, very quickly into my master's, I kind of realized that I wasn't a very good programmer. <laughs> as uh, at least not as good as i thought i was and just uh, it was a it was a pretty rude shock to me and <laughs> uh, there were just so many people so good that was it was a humbling experience and i kind of after that i was directionless i you know graduated at a pretty bad time around 2002 uh, there weren't enough jobs in cs um, especially for international students so I got into this uh, back office job as uh, you know this data guy at uh, the World Bank in Washington D.C. I started my career there. That was my first paycheck. After that, I applied to this really fancy company, McKinsey, where I just uh, a, a few friends of mine were in that company, and I was very envious of their lifestyle and their job. So I applied through the website on mckinsey.com and uh, they did a bunch of interviews and a month later i was working there that was sort of again 
for me, it was like going to a school, but a very different kind of school, this sort of business school. I just really enjoyed my time there. I spent about five years uh, traveling the world. I uh, I worked in Japan for more six or seven months. I worked in the UK, uh, spent a little bit of time in Belgium, in Singapore. It was just a great way in your 20s to travel and see the world and uh, work with super bright people. And uh, I kind of finally decided to leave the US and go uh, and join uh, McKinsey's India office, which was still uh, back in 2006 and seven was in its early days. And um, I just wanted to be a part of this small office that they were building out there in India. And I, I reached out to a few people. They were very kind in said, sure, we'll give it a try. So I moved uh, to McKinsey, India, uh, spent a couple of years there. And uh, a friend of mine from my undergrad days, he went on to do like a PhD in materials. And uh, he came up with an idea about starting a, a materials company. And he was looking for a co-founder and I was uh, trying to, I was getting a little bit bored with McKinsey by that time, which was like five years in. So um, I went and did this company with him, which, uh, <laughs> which didn't work at all. Um, I was a, looking back, it was a pretty bad idea. And after that, uh, we folded the company and, uh, it wasn't going anywhere. It was, uh, I was, I was uh, for a year doing nothing. And I just learned a lot about, uh, you know, Paul Graham's essays. I mean, I guess that's the next big thing that happened to me, which is I stumbled upon PG's essays. And I would say that changed, that had a very profound effect on my thinking about everything that we were being really stupid about in my previous company. Uh, was I wanted to be involved. I thought that there's this place called Silicon Valley where uh, this mystical place, this mecca of tech. Uh, and in my imagination, I, I used to dream about being here and working here. And I, I, I thought, you know, there are iPhones that grow on trees and roads are paved with iPads. And like, this is where, <laughs> this is where all the interesting things happen. So a friend of mine, um, so I applied for a small company uh, out of Y Combinator for a job, uh, sort of hustled my way in and they sort of realized very quickly that they didn't need uh, a person. They just wanted to, uh, you know, try if if they could hire somebody and it was, wasn't a good fit. Somehow I sort of ended up uh, in a phone call, like a five minute phone call with uh, Sam Altman. And, and I told him that I would love to have a job in one of the YC companies. He shared my information around with a few people. And this is again, you know, just pure luck and how this extraordinary kindness of uh, somebody's five minutes, how that can change your life. He sent out an email and I got a reply back from uh, uh, Parker Conrad, who was doing benefits and uh, we spoke, uh, he asked me to interview with a few other people. And uh, 10 days later, I was an employee of Zenefits. They, they sponsored my visa to come here. And I was in Silicon Valley working uh, in Zenefits, not knowing everything about what they do. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't pretty uh, smart. I just wanted to come here. I just wanted to be uh, in the Bay Area um, working with, just cool people. So um, I started working at Benefits and I started doing, um, started in operations, uh, did a little bit of work on the product, did a little bit of work with engineering. I was just doing dabbling into many things. And uh, there was a management changeover that happened at Benefits and uh, David Sachs uh, took over as CEO and he appointed me as head of operations, uh, which again uh, he took a he took a big bet on an unknown uh, person, and uh, 
that was the another thing that again changed my life and i got this uh, uh front row seat to how david works and operates and things and he's again uh, uh, a genius uh that i got to work with and he the co-founder of zenefits lux and i became quite close he was the cto and co-founder and we had been talking about the process of buying a home and the uh, the financing of buying a home and all of that so my wife and i were thinking about buying a home in the bay area and we gave up very quickly and that whole experience left me just quite perplexed and confused and to be quite honest feeling very poor it's not a good feeling so i asked around as politely as i could with my colleagues and i felt like a lot of people felt that way uh, so yeah i mean just lux and i kept talking for 2 years about you know what that experience actually should be and what one could do about it and uh, it became more and more serious so that's how that's how this sort of company got started um, essentially you know we are the customer that we are trying to serve initially so that's that's sort of my whole whole journey from the small town in india to doing zero down now god that's such a uh, incredible story and there's a ton of notes that i i kind of wrote down as you were talking and one of the the first things is um and even since i've met you you're such a grateful person and you always kind of lead out when you talk about things about how grateful you are and how the people around you have have helped have helped and that you're grateful for that have you always been a, a very grateful person um like it, it just radiates out of you and i think it's one of the most uh appealing aspects of who you are and um yeah i, I don't even know the question i'm asking but what makes you so grateful maybe that's the question this has been uh, a pretty common thread even since when i was a little kid ever since I, i distinctly remember being in the classroom um and questioning whether this teacher remembers what it was like being a student and i always felt that one of the ways to fix education would be if every teacher just remembered uh what it was like being a student and i kind of have at that point when when you're very young you seem to have very few original thoughts and i and i thought am i the only one who who can see that that's the problem like, am i the only one who sees that this teacher has just completely forgotten uh what it was like for them when they were uh, they were just a kid so this idea was is sort of a little bit deep rooted in my mind of uh never forgetting where you are from yeah and how other people have contributed to your journey and i'm reflecting on it after you've asked the question uh, yeah. i don't think i'm particularly grateful than more people but i would definitely say that i try to take a much more bigger picture or systems view of every situation where i can see myself as being uh, one of the one of the people and one or one of the things in that system and there are a lot of other forces at play yeah. and just having that recognition is uh, is humbling and a lot of times it's other people taking a chance on you when they didn't have to or giving you an opportunity that didn't have to and if if there is even a modicum of success that one enjoys it has come through uh, a lot of collaboration and a lot of uh, luck and a lot of chances that other people have taken I love it man it's uh I don't know I just felt like I had to say that it's it's just something that is very apparent um that you're grateful and you know again I think people that are grateful for where they're at that that energy in itself kind of radiates and it attracts so you're uh you're growing up and you take a really um big interest in making and designing video games uh after kind of following your engineering uh passion what resources did you have or or what um 
how did you get into making and designing video games? Uh, I had a friend who, growing up in, who I met in the eighth grade, who got me into it. Uh, he, uh, I don't know how to put it in a different way, but he, he was he was well he was well off, and uh, he had a PC in his home and. Uh, after school, we, he and I would go to his room and play video games all day, <laughs> PC games all day. And yeah. uh, at the time, it was mostly adventure games. And that's what really got me hooked. And then we, we started to fool around with this uh, thing called QBasic, which had a game, uh, which had a couple of example games. And that was the first time really... I saw the uh, the code. It was it, it broke it broke my mind that these things were built by hand, and it had sort of never occurred to me that somebody wrote line by line these things, which um, that the fact that they were just human-made things um, wasn't that obvious to me until I saw the code. And uh, I uh, uh, I started to just use his computer more than he would, and <laughs> um, until one day they asked me the, to politely sort of go home, and I was <laughs> spending way too much time in their home, and um, and then I would just at every opportunity try to find a PC. They were all over my father's office. I would go to his office, uh, and. Uh, and and after after hours, just uh, be on this uh, PC uh, trying to program uh, very very simple, very rudimentary games. But um, um, and then I wasn't professionally doing this, meaning I didn't make any money or something. It was just me um, making some small game and sharing it with my classmates because. Uh, that was one thing that made me look very cool. And uh, so I was doing it to look very cool to my classmates and my friends. But I, but I was obsessed with PC games and playing them. And it was just a, uh, a great, uh, it was a great thing. And uh, I, I have one anecdote about that time that, I, that might be interesting. Yeah. Uh, in India, you basically, in order to get into an engineering school, you have to write an exam uh, where they test you on math, physics, and chemistry. Um, and if you do well in that exam, you get to pursue an engineering degree. And uh, a lot of my time, while other people were preparing for this exam, was going into playing these games. And my father used to think that I'm just, would amount to nothing and I'm wasting my time and he was a little bit unhappy about my obsession and it was much later in life that I kind of realized that, that one of the reasons why I got very good in physics it was because of all this uh, imagination and uh, like when when somebody when somebody showed me a problem on paper it was about rotational dynamics or a, or a mechanics problem uh, I could visualize those figures as almost like as animation and i could correctly predict the direction of the force and the direction where friction applies and things like that and if you and and a lot of um foundation of mechanics just comes from creating a a proper free body diagram and if you can if you can visualize the problem very clearly you have a a good chance at solving it. So the fact that I got good at these at these sciences, in some way, I think is attrib attributable to my interest in these PC games. And <laughs> um, at least that's my working theory for now. For all this justification uh, of uh, spending hours on those things, but I I could really feel like I had an edge because I I would speak with my colleagues and they wouldn't. They wouldn't predict those 
uh, free body diagrams uh, as easily as I could. And, and I think it was just uh, spending a lot of time in this realm of games that made that a little bit easier for me, which was harder for other people. So anyway, I, I do not recommend this and do not try this at home, but I do feel like games did help me uh, get an engineering degree. Did, do you think some of this was nature or nurture? You mentioned that your dad was an engineer. Were you exposed to a lot of maybe like physics and things that were beyond your years when you were really um, young? Or was this more uh, nature and this is just kind of how you were wired when you were born? Um, I mean, the, if you're a student in India, there is just generally an emphasis on on math and uh, sciences. Uh, so definitely, it was a, it is a confluence of many factors. Um, I think just generally there is a, um, a certain amount of wiring that school system gives you. I think is a little bit of exposure from my from my dad where he would bring some books home and I would try to sneak in and try and read them. They would make no sense to me, but they would look very interesting. And and you know he would be working on engineering designs that I would try to make sense of. So it wasn't ever a direct conversation between me and him. He was a, um, a little bit of an old-fashioned, uh, uh, quiet uh, person who, who kind of never directly told me to do anything. Um, it was all through gentle nudges and uh, and suggestions. So it was a little bit of that. I think just being in this education system um, helped and then and I think it was just uh, a lot of uh, uh, programming uh, at an early stage helps it gives you this certain kind of wiring where you can think of uh, systems and you can think of uh, uh, how things are built block by block and that could amount to something once you compile it uh, something much much bigger and uh, it gives you some patience uh, because programming is just hard. Things just don't work off the gate. It's just a lot of trial and error. Uh, it gives you so. So as a kid, I think if you have patience and persistence and and some exposure um, to these STEM things, uh, may have helped me. But uh, um, were you self-taught, or did somebody teach you how to program? Uh, it was uh, it was self-taught because some of these uh, programs uh, at that time came with a tutorial. So uh, yes, I, I would just go through tutorials on my own, and um, and internet. You know those twenty six point six kbps modems that made a the fax machine noise. Uh, I had again I had access to internet through my friend who okay. had it in his house and uh, so you could we could look up tutorials and things like that so i don't i don't remember very clearly but yes it was a lot of it was self taught just because i became obsessed and very interested in it and one other question and then we'll we'll move a little bit further and down the, the line of your life but what's the difference in education in india versus education in the united states Given that you've been experienced, uh, you've experienced both. Quality of teachers. Uh, I felt the universities here had an amazing quality of teachers. Um, in America. In in the U.S. Yes. Uh, going through university here was far more enjoyable to me because of some some great teachers and and I didn't think the teachers in India were uh, very interested they just lacked some kind of this empathy gene or I, I'm pretty sure there are like any generalization about a large country is hard but at least in my experience I didn't have those teachers in my formative years so when I came to the US and went through the university system here I was just blown away by 
how good the teachers were. So, in fact, the same syllabus, I could I could see how it could be taught in two very very different ways. And in India, there's a lot of focus on memorization and learning by rote. Um, not fully, uh, people. There isn't that much emphasis on understanding fundamentals and basic concepts. Um, it was just about if you get the right answer and uh, you would get full points. And whereas here, if you didn't even get the right answer, but you, the teacher sensed that you were trying to approach it in the right way, they'll still give you some points. And that was, again, a revolutionary idea for me, um, that, oh, it's not, every, answer is not everything. So, so I always thought that the university system in America is uh, is extraordinary. is is just very good, and I I haven't have any exposure to the school system yet. My kids are still young there, um, but I'm I do wonder about that question that you just asked. I don't have an answer, but but I do wonder what are those differences. You know, once I get more exposed to uh, what my kids are doing, I might I might tell you a much more uh, educated answer on the school. But the university system in the U.S. was just amazing. Yep. Um, you mentioned that Paul Graham's essays changed your life. Who told you about them and what about them changed your life? Um, again, a friend. Uh, there's a friend of mine who was uh, uh, trying to build an app. I don't know if you remember Viber, which was this voice over IP uh, application that you would install on your phone and make phone calls just on data. And uh, so he was trying to build a better Viber, just just a single person app developer. And uh, he's the first one who mentioned the word Paul Graham and, and alluded to an essay, which uh, just made me curious and go on the internet and, and read them. And once I read one, um, I I kind of, after finishing it, uh, just uh, slouched back in my chair and regretted everything that I had done in my previous startup. Like it was, it was somebody telling me, uh, pointing out all the mistakes that I had done, and uh, and it was uh, I was it was very embarrassing that all this knowledge was out there and I just didn't have the uh, I link to, to read it. And I felt like, oh, I would have avoided a lot of these mistakes in my previous company. So it was only, uh, uh, it wasn't just the essay. It was also a point in time in life when I was ready to internalize and receive that knowledge. Um, so the failure of my previous company made it very vivid to me. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I just happened to uh, read them by chance, and once I read one, I just couldn't stop reading. Um, and they're also very dense, and uh, really, like a single essay can have lots of great ideas, so you can't hold everything in your head, but when you're reading them, they're almost like, well, somebody has written, like given you a map. Right? This is, again, the video game analogy. Like The, the map has been revealed on how to create a company. Uh, I thought that was just insanely powerful, um, how, how all of this just came out of this one person's head and uh, how generously he had just put it up online for free for anyone to really read the prescription on uh, what mistakes to avoid and how to think and how do, um, how do, how do you really start a company? So. Yeah. It was a powerful moment in time, as well as the essays. That's awesome. I've read a couple of them, but I'm definitely going to go read some more on the plane ride tomorrow. So you meet with Sam Alt, or you talk with Sam Altman, who's the president of Y Combinator now, and he puts you in touch with Parker Conrad, and you join a company called Zenefits, and it, it's known now as maybe the fastest scaling company that's come out of Silicon Valley, what was it like being at a company that was growing so quick? And I don't want to mess up the numbers, but something like 
zero to 4,000 employees in under five years. Is that right? It was like zero to 1,600 employees in, in two years or something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was quite, uh, so when I'm joining it, I have no idea how important or interesting this company could be. For me, it was like, hey, Parker's willing to, you know, Parker's company is willing to sponsor my visa. So great. I will, I will come here and then I'll figure out what to do next. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so I saw, uh, the company's growth, both in terms of people and revenue, um, from the inside and, um, and, uh, what was it like? Uh, like, is the culture ever really set when there's that many people coming in that quick, or is it changing like by the day? It it doesn't get a chance to set because right. at any point in time, sixty to seventy percent of the company is new. is is like barely a few months in. So it was it was pretty insane. From my personal point of view, the the growth was very interesting because of everything that I was unlearning. I guess the question that gets asked most often is like, what did I learn? But what was more interesting to me was all the things that I had to unlearn about how uh, startups work or how businesses work. And and those, uh, I was acutely aware of how counterintuitive some of the um, some of the decisions and some of the uh, things are about hyper growth. Um, for example, you know, in McKinsey, you're taught to um, solve problems in a specific way. Uh, you know, you, you you form a hypothesis, you go and uh, collect data, and do some analysis, and and either accept or reject the hypothesis, and in an in a small company in its early days when it's growing really fast, there's a lot of customer demand for the thing that you're building. The decision making just doesn't follow that template. It's um, I, I give this example of let's say somebody's uh, trying to throw a dart on the dartboard, and the McKenzie person is giving given this task to hit the bullseye, and this person I think would start doing this analysis. They would start making the projectile diagram and figuring out the angle and the velocity at which to throw this dart and and et cetera, et cetera, to try and basically aim for the bullseye. And they'll do this very careful uh, study. And what it feels like inside a, inside a hypergrowth company is that this, this dartboard is attached on like side of a train and you're on a horse. Um, next to this fast-moving train, and you are now asked to throw a dart on this moving dartboard. So, yeah. uh, so the goal—it's super chaotic—is my point. So you kind of have to learn to reframe the problem and say, "Well, my goal is not really to hit the bullseye. My goal is to invent ten low-cost darts, so that yep. if I can throw a sufficient number of them." I increase the probability of hitting bullseye as opposed to having the goal of hitting bullseye. And again, this sort of continuous subtle reframing, a lot of it is what I learned from Zenefits and and leadership at Zenefits was very valuable because uh, I was unlearning a lot of things as fast as I was learning them. Um, And and a lot of those things were uh, very counterintuitive. But yes, it came with all the chaos of the of the growth and and culture and and all of the stuff that you mentioned. How would you prioritize what to do? So I'm just imagining I, I joined Zenefits and it's 50 people. I look up six months from now, it's at 500 people. Like the goals have to be changing almost in real time. Clearly, there's there's some big objectives, but not only setting what the goals are, but continuously getting everybody to buy into them as, you know, 10 new people are coming on every day. Are the goals ever really set or are they this moving target? Or like, I'm just trying to figure out how everybody rallies around kind of a couple key things or is that, does that even happen? It does happen and it happens mainly through uh, leadership, right? The, 
you know, Parker would have these all hands every week where he would very openly talk about everything that's going well and everything that's not going well and what the priorities were. So in, in some sense, my job was quite easy because he was figuring out what the big problems were and and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, my colleagues and my job was to try and solve those problems. Uh, but yeah, it was an ever-shifting uh, thing. Now, directionally, all of these dots connect in Parker's mind very clearly, but we would work on a piece of that problem, uh, hoping that all of this would connect in uh, in his brain. And and he did. I mean, he was he is extraordinarily smart and one of one of the great entrepreneurs. So he was uh, he was very good at uh, talking very openly about uh, the big priorities. And after a few months in, I uh, I remember um, talking to him uh, about just directly asking him, hey, you know, this is such a big problem. Do you mind if I just work on it? And, and he said, sure. All right, you're working on this problem. And that problem went away uh, after, after some time. And uh, that was the first time I sort of probably uh, he noticed that I was in the company. So the, but the problems are, I think, uh, ever changing and they exist at different levels in different forms, but they're all connected to, they're all about serving the customer and delivering the best product the customers need and trying to make it as fast as possible because there are lots of customers want it. Um, so at different points in time, the nature of the problem, uh, the specific problem might shift, but it's all connected to uh, either trying to build the best widget or trying to make as many widgets as fast as we can. Right. And David Sachs comes on and he makes you the head of operations at Zenefits. How many people were at the company at that point? And just a couple minutes on what was that role like for you and, and what did you learn from it? I believe uh, um, there were about uh, 600 people in operations who, who uh, at that time, and they were uh, spread across uh, a couple of locations. The thing I learned there was mostly softer things about how to work with other people and how to look at the world from other person's point of view. Um, how do you try and get the best out of your team? It's it's basically uh, you go from trying to trying to build the machine to basically trying to build the machine that builds the machine, right? So you kind of uh, up you have to up level your thinking a little bit and um, and think more about uh, how you can enable and empower, uh, give autonomy. Uh, to, to the folks. And my job basically became mostly about uh, whether we were making the right trade-offs. Like I would, I would thought partner with the folks who reported to me to uh, make sure that we are working on the right things. But uh, my goal mainly was to try and give uh, problem-solving autonomy to, uh, to other folks and have them express you know their authentic self at work. Um, so, so that's how you know. Again, this is all sort of. I'm explaining all of this to you now, but it yeah. was uh, it was uh, learned over over time through yeah. through coaching and and mentoring, and uh, some of it came from folks who report to me. Some of that came from my peers. Some of that came from David Sachs. So, it was just. Uh, I, I had good folks who would uh, call me out, <laughs> and and over time I tried to think harder and harder about what my job is, and and it wasn't really just about trying to be a smart person on this specific problem, but really trying enabling other people to be that. Right, and and that was that was a really big shift in how I worked. And you said that you were given kind of training and 
maybe executive coaching or was there stuff that you were reading or was it just kind of learning by observation and, and, and mentors within the company that you wanted to emulate? Uh, everything, Chris. It was uh, me reaching out to other folks who had senior roles in bigger companies uh, like Lyft or Flexport or, and, and just uh, cold emailing them and saying, would you have a, a coffee with me? And just asking them questions uh, about the problems I was dealing with. So I created sort of, uh, I forced other people to be my mentors. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and then there were folks internally who were just uh, very bright. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, anyone who has been through a hyper growth phase, it's what's really happening to them is that there is a massive time compression that happens in how, how much you can learn. Um, in a short sp space of time. So I had incredibly smart people around me who who almost, you know, would almost always just uh, act as teachers. So, um, so the answer to the question is uh, I sought help from everywhere. I didn't go and get an executive coach. Maybe that was the only thing that I, uh, that was remaining, but I, I sought out ideas and coaching and uh, management uh, philosophies with with the peers in other companies and and inside the company. Well, now we're getting to the the real meat. Talking about zero down, the current company that you're the CEO of. So you had been thinking about this for a couple of years with your co-founder. Um, I think it's a it's a fascinating business. Kind of high level. What what is zero down, and how is it solved the problem that um, that you were facing? So, uh, Zero Down is, uh, is trying to help people uh, come into home ownership. It, it started off with a, with a thought experiment. This thought experiment was, uh, what if one could take the idea of uh, cliff investing of stock options and apply it to a house? So, this idea that uh, uh, somebody wants a house and we buy it for them and the house starts vesting to them. Um, so essentially they buy one brick every day of that house. And after a certain period of time, they have uh, enough bricks to go and get a, a conventional loan uh, and, and those bricks become a down payment. And, and that, was the, uh, that was the original sort of framing um, or the what if question that uh, Lux and I started talking about, and it it seemed very appealing. It wasn't a straight line uh, to this idea. So if I were to tell you the real story, the real story was that over two years there was a a, a lot of influences that came from just hearing other people trying to learn from what's happening in the space, and, and so on. And I can talk about specifically uh, what those influences were. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a Brian Chesky podcast where he talks about uh, how, they, how they design customer experience at Airbnb. And uh, one of the most fascinating things in that uh, podcast was he says, well, um, if the customer gives us a 10-star rating, which means we have done a great job as Airbnb, um, can we think about what would be an 11-star experience? And people around the room go, well, you know, these are a few additional things we can do. And then he says, what would be a 12-star experience? And, and it goes on and on, and, and they reach, you know, 17 stars where the experience is that somebody comes to the airport and they land and there's like an elephant parade that takes them to the Airbnb. They reach this sort of ridiculous point and, and rolled back uh, from that to uh, designing an experience that was way better than what they were providing. And that was a very strong influence on, on me because Lux and I sort of listened to that podcast and... Uh, uh, and thought about how can buying a home be that much better. So, so we did this Brian Chesky exercise, and we said, what if 
one could just point to a home and from their point of view the next thing that happens is that they get a key and a bottle of champagne yep. and uh, so can we design that experience so uh, that was an important part of uh, coming up with what we wanted the users to feel what we wanted the customers to feel and there was a uh, there was a second influence on the company which is this uh, which is crypto i was uh, just like anyone else i was following crypto twitter i was uh, uh, you know i bought some bitcoin uh, uh, way back in the day from india when, you know back in 2013 and um, and when it grew in value it became uh, uh, like many people i started taking it very seriously and just trying to learn more and more about what was all this about i was just fascinated by the space and what's happening there and and this idea of sort of fractional ownership and uh, just the philosophy of crypto had a very profound influence on my thinking so with philosophy i mean uh, i think crypto fundamentally has done this for a lot of people where they start asking interesting fundamental questions why things are the way they are what are the things that we take for granted um, and and i think that's a very good framework for for startups so just being sort of uh, involved in this crypto universe had a had a pretty profound effect i i always joke with my with my friends that you know deep down secretly zero down is is a crypto company and i know it's in many circles it's it's a dirty word uh people think it's a scam or something but i've just been very enamored by the philosophy uh the bitcoin the bitcoin paper by satoshi had a had a profound influence where again he's asking fundamental questions about what is money so there's the philosophical influence uh of crypto there is uh there's this third influence where uh, uh, again just purely by accident i saw this uh, peter thiel video where he's talking about bubbles and he says uh, uh, how every bubble is simultaneously a moment of peak madness and peak clarity um, so the madness is all the human folly at display greed and and things like that but at the heart of the bubble there is a very good idea that's when humanity is very clear about the future so let's say chris you and i were doing this podcast in 99 we'd be very excited about how big the internet is going to be and uh, and it and it happened 10 years later it, it, every every one of those dot uh, com ideas became a big and a legitimate company um versus in 99 people were just trying to add the word dot com to their name and ipo so so there were there's again a very strong parallel to the the crypto bubble of 2017 well i was in the bubble uh, i was acutely aware that it's going to burst one day but all these ideas that look crazy are going to come true in the next 10 years so these ideas of uh, apps that need to be censorship resistant these ideas of uh, you know decentralized ownership and um where where one entity or one person doesn't control everything and uh ideas of cross border money movement and just those basic crypto ideas i thought were incredible and very powerful and i was very aware that everyone who's trying to do something now just probably won't work uh but it'll all come true 10 years later uh, this peter thiel question therefore where it became interesting for zero down was uh the question that he doesn't ask which is what were the good ideas in the 2008 financial crisis and i and i suppose this is a little bit of a thielian question uh i don't claim to know the answer but i i've thought about it a lot and and there were some good ideas and and maybe zero down is an expression of one of those ideas so the long answer to your question is zero down comes from a deep personal experience of just feeling poor and all of these other influences 
which were uh, a lot of them were just accidents uh, that slowly just layered on on our thinking and it it reached a point where it felt like if just we had to do this we had to go and try this this thing otherwise nobody was doing it and uh, or this very specific version of it and uh and we just it reached this inevitable point where if we didn't do this startup we would we would feel really bad so in in essence i'm a buyer i might make a lot in salary and and relative call it a, a credit a buyer somebody that's making multiple six figure salary maybe i have some cash maybe i don't but even if i do i really don't want to put all that down on a home so i'm going to go to zero down and basically make a a deal that you'll finance the home for me i will sign and and be the buyer and sign what's similar to like a triple net lease even though i own it and every mortgage payment that i make i earn more of the equity in that house and then at some point in time down the road i have a decision make whether that's to cash in the equity and buy the house or take my equity and move on down the road is that kind of framing it in the right way from a high level i think you framed it in the right way except that there's no mortgage or no equity involved here it's a it's it's a lease to own with with a spin on it right so there are there are uh, five things specifically that we focus on a lot when we think about the product the product tries to give people more time so the fact that they have 2 to 5 years to make a decision to buy the home um giving people more time where hopefully their buying power in the future is greater than what it is today um and that became a very important principle for us so uh, you know more time the second key pillar is more flexibility so the fact that somebody could change their mind if home ownership is not for them was again an important idea for us uh, as as a as a feature the third thing is more empowerment so again as an individual uh, folks may not be able to uh, buy a home in all cash but perhaps as a company we can um on on their behalf therefore taking possession of the home that they eventually would want to be in and so they don't lose on the house and and this uh, the fact that they pick their home the fact that we uh, win those deals more often is is empowering that consumer the fourth ideas of this uh, more assistance where these purchase credits that one accrues uh, every month could become cash when they are ready to buy and they would use that assistance as a down payment and and the fifth pillar is just trying to make it more easy so we we wrote down these sort of five things that we try to build the product around um so it's a lease to own with more time more assistance more power more flexibility and more ease and that's really how we think about the product and the way it works is is exactly like how you described uh, chris which is that if they're trying to buy a house uh they pick the home we buy it uh they start accruing purchase credits and and, and at a later date they can um they can use those purchase credits to go and get a conventional loan and by giving people more time and more flexibility which a better experience uh, some assistance uh and and just empowering them has been the central driving force one of the things um that i found really interesting when we first started chatting was your the concierge side of your business and this idea of I'll call it loyalty points for making your mortgage payment on time. Can you speak just a little bit to that? Yeah. Um so uh, every uh, every time that somebody sort of making payments uh those monthly payments to us, they get uh, they get reward points. Uh if the consumer wishes, 
they could uh, connect their bank account with our app and every time they would use Uber, Lyft, or Instacart, they would get some points. And they can spend these points on a whole host of partners that uh, companies that we are partnering with. So just to give you an example, uh, a customer came to us uh, last week and said, uh, um, uh, would you guys one day partner with the babysitter service? And um, and we we hadn't thought of that, so we we are now trying to partner with uh, maybe Trusted.com or someone like that. So they would be able to spend these rewards on babysitter service or trying to get a home inspection done or trying to access um, uh, a company like Shelter or, or Setter, uh, and they would get a small discount if they use that service through the concierge. And so it's all about just keep giving folks uh, what they want while they're living in the house. Right. And, uh, and just trying to change and enhance the experience of just being a homeowner by, uh, by remaining invisible in some sense, but also just being available to them when they need assistance. Right. So, uh, so that's, that's concierge. It's a, it's a fairly simple idea, fairly simple product. And, and so far, the customers seem to seem to like it. From their point of view, they just uh, this is a house that keeps giving them deals all the time. And every week we we add a deal, and we want to do that for the next five, ten years. Um, and hopefully, uh, this becomes more more and more useful and and uh, uh, an important part of the user experience. The great thing about concierge from our point of view is that it's not compulsory to use it. So we have to do a great job if we want people to use it. But every time somebody uses a concierge service, we make a little bit of money on the back end. So this idea that one could potentially make money from the concierge and over time make the real estate cheaper and cheaper for the consumers was an important idea for us to at least try to set up the business in such a way where that might be possible. Yep. You made a comment on one of our phone calls that you might not even remember making, but I haven't, I've thought about it a bunch and I asked you how um, you were getting customers and you said, well, we, we really haven't had to do much marketing given our background at Zenefits, which was an HR company, we kind of ha did a growth hack that was free and we got our friends at these big companies to post about our company in their main Slack channel. And when somebody posts about zero down in the main Slack channel at a big company, that, that instantly um, could reach thousands of people and it's coming from somebody that they trust. And you were able to get zero down into multiple of the biggest companies in Silicon Valley's Slack channels almost overnight. And you went from having, you know, less than a hundred potential buyers to hundreds overnight. I don't even know if That's I'm right. asking the question, but I, I'm saying publicly that I just thought that was like really fascinating. And I've thought about it a bunch is um, just how the world's kind of changed to where you can reach thousands of people by thinking cleverly and, and Slack is a huge tool. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. And I don't know if it was really a question, but I just really found it fascinating and I haven't, I've thought about it a bunch since. Yeah. So again, this is one of those things, Chris, where it only looks clever in, in the, when, in, in the rear view. The first time that happened was really genuinely an interested friend who shared our link with the with their team essentially and what we saw was a bunch of people coming from the same company and starting to sign up and ask questions and we kind of put two and two together and imagined okay this oh this friend must have uh, talked about it um, and uh, so the first few times it just happened through benevolent friends 
and and after that we uh we became much more conscious about it and and started to ask people for favors if they would point out to their colleagues about the fact that we exist and 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 then at some point again after that it just started to happen spontaneously meaning we stopped asking about it and folks kept doing it so 100% of our initial growth was word of mouth uh purely our friends telling other friends and and then some of them becoming customers and they started bringing more customers um and that did give us this idea that uh, what if we could actually go and partner with some of these companies and would they ever consider um you know talking about zero down to their employees if if uh, if this is a significant pain in their employees lives and there are there are certain employees that um are uh, of a certain age where they might start to think of buying a home and we were just reading all these statistics about people trying to move out of bay area uh, because of housing and things like that i don't know how uh, true those statistics are but it seemed like there was something there also from anecdotal experience so over time that just became a a conscious strategy that something that started off with uh, with just asking a few friends and yeah yeah but that seemed to have worked very well for us where uh just folks telling other people about us and uh folks getting curious about what this might be and coming to our site and asking us questions and talking to us is is the way we get customers today sure. we have we have done some advertising since last week though i must say so uh we definitely uh felt very comfortable with the fact that okay this is it took us it took us a while to really believe that this was a worthwhile idea to the thing to work on and and so on we were, we were very skeptical so after we saw a lot of customer love uh from the early set of customers that sort of again cemented the the worth of the product and what we were doing far more than what we just ourselves thought of uh, so once we had a we took our time to work out a lot of operational kinks and uh to really understand um because we are complete outsiders uh like our team is the founding team doesn't have a strong background in real estate or or finance and so a lot of it was something that we had to learn um once we felt a little bit comfortable about the love that was coming our way from the customers the fact that people were just spontaneously sharing about zero down with each other we thought that we can uh, we can do some advertising to maybe i don't know put more fuel on this organic word of mouth growth is word of mouth still the most powerful marketing tool there there is that's right uh i mean talking about like folks who really convert and uh who actually uh buy and trust us those those almost always are folks that our existing customers have referred or 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 a friend who has taken the time to explain to another friend uh that this is a good idea and why this could be worthwhile so yep. i would still say i mean the the it's too early for me to make a comment on on marketing still but definitely uh you know the pipeline if you look at the pipeline today it's mostly uh folks that have come word of mouth yep has there been anything since you started and you're relatively let's call it less than a year old is there anything that has shocked you about the customer or the business that you're building that you didn't start the day you launched the, the day you decided to do this um what has shocked me is uh, how powerful uh, and meaningful home ownership is for a few people uh, the the emotional intensity has been overwhelming to put it sort of pretty directly uh, when a customer cries as they're walking into their home that's a very powerful moment 
so that has happened a few times and and you know all of us uh, i would say all of us in the company we don't talk about it but there is this silent acknowledgement that we all were incredibly moved um uh, so just how important that is uh, how important buying a home is how important putting folks on a path to ownership is sort of more important than i thought the the other thing that i that was very surprising to me this is a little bit on the fun side is that every single person does their own very very custom map so when it sort of comes to personal finances uh i have spoken to uh, maybe 300 customers until now and um almost everyone has their very unique logic about you know what what works and what doesn't work for them so there is a little bit of that sort of fun side i guess where uh, you know all of us including myself first and foremost are are irrational in in some sense but we have the pretense of being rational so our customers sort of switch between these two modes quite a bit we would explain to them about the benefits and why uh why for their particular circumstances this might be a good thing and why sometimes it won't be and then there is this other types of customers who come in to our office even <laughs> like i've had people walk in uh figuring they figured out where our office was and they walked in with their excel file and asked me what am i missing so so th- those are those are some of the uh fun things for me to witness as to how everyone does their own custom map in yep. their excel files or heads that's awesome well man this has been an incredible conversation i learned so much from you every time we talk and i have like a thousand more notes that i would love to to chat about and we'll do that when i come to to san francisco but i really appreciate your time and willingness to be on the 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 episode with me hey chris this has been nothing but a great pleasure i mean thank you so much for having me and i've always just enjoyed learning from you and and talking to you and i'm a super massive fan of yours and uh the sooner i get a chance to spend time with you i'll be really really happy i i can't wait to meet you again when you're in sf yes sir thank you again thanks chris thanks so much hey everyone it's chris here again Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.